welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfon, and I'm once again being laughed at in studio by my co-host Joseph Cacharo. So you weren't lying when you when you said the "what up" thing is done, and you're just going to go with a different greeting every week. I it's like over, it. man. Well, you know, we'll see we'll see what works and what I get comfortable with, and maybe I'll eventually settle on one. But um, yeah, for now, I feel like mixing it up. Uh, <laughs> what's going on, Cash? How you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. We're a couple weeks into the season, some trends are starting to emerge. Some trash teams are starting to emerge. Some great teams are. Looking like they're emerging, it's, it's fun times. There's nobody that I would prefer to talk about trash teams with than you, man. Uh, I, I just like the emphasis that you put on those words, trash, clown. I was going to say, a lot of clowns. <laughs> There's a lot of clowns on those trash teams. We'll get into a couple of them today. Um, and ultimately, I think what we're going to do on this podcast is talk about some teams who have over and underperformed expectations. And not necessarily our expectations, but just sort of general league-wide expectations uh, early in the season and and things that have surprised us and we can get granular with it and specific or we can talk about it in the macro sense but we're just going to hit on a few teams and and with a focus on ones that we haven't talked about yet right like everyone knows the suns are surprising but we did talk about them last week you wrote you wrote a great feature on them yeah we talked a bunch about the suns we have talked about the warriors we talked about the pelicans we talked about the kings so we can leave those teams aside just to sort of focus on the ones that we haven't hit on yet. But, I mean, maybe we should just spend a couple minutes talking about the Suns because they did beat the undefeated Sixers last night and granted no Embiid. But just another impressive win. And no, no Aiton for them. And I know that impacts their defense, but that, that's still... He's, I'd still say he's an above-average NBA player at this point. Yeah. It's starting to get pretty interesting to me what they're going to do when he comes back. Yeah. Because I say this without hyperbole, Aaron Baines has been one of the five best centers in the league so far. And I know not all of that is going to sustain. Like, he's not going to keep shooting 48% from three. But the way that he has stabilized their defense, to me, looks pretty real. And they have been one of the best teams in the league at defending inside the restricted area. And Baines just gives them an anchor in the middle, I think, that allows everybody else on the perimeter to apply a little bit more ball pressure. He takes, he just takes a little bit of responsibility and a little bit of pressure off of everybody else. And he has been so good uh, in that scheme. And I don't know, man, like you compare them to the Kings of last year, which I think maybe is an apt comparison just in terms of what their results might look like. Stylistically, it's completely different. And to me, you know, those Kings never defended at a particularly high level. I think the Suns defense might be sort of for real. Like I don't, they're not going to continue. I think they're sixth in the league right now. So that's not going to keep up. I don't think, but they look like they're going to be an average at worst defense and maybe slightly above average, which is just crazy to think, you know, coming into the season, what our expectations of this team were. I think they're a legitimately solid to good NBA team that, you know, barring injuries should be able to keep this up all season. I'm not saying keep this up that they're going to win five out of every six, obviously not, but keep this up in the sense that in a very loaded Western conference where I think we thought they were going to lose 50 to 55 games again, if not more, I think they can actually win somewhere in the four, like low to mid 40s. I don't, I don't even know, even after this good start and me admitting that I think they're legit good, I still don't even know if they're going to make the playoffs. They might right. not because the West is that good. But can they've this team... Banked, they've banked five wins against a very tough schedule. Yeah, I mean, they beat the Clippers on. and the Sixers, right? Like, I think they lost They lost in Denver and they lost the game to Utah. by. Those are the two games they lost by One a combined point two points. Yeah, so... They're good, and the results show it, and you know they'll win, I think, 40 to 45 games, maybe even a little more. And in the Western Conference, for a team that everyone thought was going to be trash, like, that's, that's pretty good. And I'll just say, Devin Booker he was is, so good is a phenomenal night. talent, man. And 
he took a lot of crap early in his career, and some of it justified. I'm, and I'm not saying he's now this fully realized, flawless superstar. He's not. He still has his flaws. He's still not a particularly good defender. He's not a perfect offensive player, but he's pretty damn close to a perfect offensive player, and he's become a good playmaker, too. Like, he was actually getting better every year, at least on the offensive side, and turning himself into the type of offensive star you can build a quality team around. And he took a lot of heat because his team and the organization and just everything around him was a complete dumpster fire. And so this guy's never even been a part of a 30-win team before, I don't believe. And like people looked at it as like, well, he must be part of the problem. And it's like, not really. Like, okay, he's not flawless, but there are many, many, many good teams in the NBA right now and throughout history that have been built around a flawed but transcendent talent on one side of the court, usually on the offensive end. Devin Booker can be that. And one thing I'll point out with him is I just think he's been so much better playing off of the ball this season and it's something he's doing more often, obviously, with Rubio Because they now finally there. have a point guard. Yeah, and um, a big thing is just like he's doing such a good job of cutting uh, and you know they're running him off of pin downs and off of curls. And I think that's really opened his game up on the offensive end. And obviously, when he has the ball in his hands, he's still super effective because as a pick-and-roll playmaker, he's been great. This is the most complete that I have ever seen him look. And, and he's even grinding on defense. I, I give him all the credit in the world for the way that he has expanded his game and how well he has played so far. Uh, so after saying that we weren't going to talk about the Suns because we talked about them already, um, there is our five-minute tangent about that team and, and how good they've been so far. So... Let's move on, and before we get into the rest of the teams that have jumped out to us early this season, uh, we do have to mention John Collins just got suspended for 25 games for uh, testing positive for a growth hormone called Peptide 2, and he is appealing that suspension on the basis that he got a contaminated supplement, whatever that means. Uh, I don't know if that is going to be a successful appeal or not, but this looks like it could be a tough blow for the Hawks, who... Started the season looking pretty strong. Then they lose Trey Young to an ankle injury, which he appears to be ready to come back from. And just as Trey is about to come back, they lose Collins potentially for 25 games. Yeah, does anybody in the East want to grab one of those last couple of playoff spots this year? We already knew whoever finished 7th and definitely 8th was going to be a bad team just because the, the conference is so top-heavy. But it's looking even worse than I imagine. And then it's like first week of the season, Trey looks great and the Hawks look kind of frisky and you're like oh this you know Trey's healthy this team could win 35 to 40 games and make the playoffs in the east and Trey gets hurt Collins is suspended the Pistons have looked bad and they don't have Blake Griffin yet the Bulls have been super disappointing the Cavs and Knicks are bad the Wizards I think have been more competitive than I thought they'd be but still are very bad the Magic have been disappointing like I know it's super early but Two weeks into the season, I'm almost already prepared to say there's only like five even decent teams in the East. Yeah, I feel very confident in saying that barring a catastrophic injury, the teams that are currently top five in the East are going to be top five in the East by season's end. Uh, and how the rest of the bracket shakes out, I'm not really sure. But again, I think you know we might see three below 500 teams make the playoffs in the East. Is that? I mean, I guess the, the Nets ultimately are probably going to climb back over 500, right? I don't know. I mean, we, I, I don't know. I can't remember if they're one of the te 10 teams we're going to talk about today. I think they are. Yeah, but. they are. Anyway, so this is the, the third 25-game suspension the league has hand out, handed out since the season started. Uh, they got Wilson Chandler. They got Aiton, obviously, and now they got John Collins. So I don't know if this is a kind of targeted crackdown from the league where they, they really want to root this kind of thing out. 
and we're going to start to see more of it. But it's certainly interesting that, that we've seen so many at the start of this season. Yeah, I don't know if it's something that they're cracking down on or it's just kind of a, a weird coincidence, but I mean, it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on because I don't remember this many long drug-related suspensions so early in the season. Yeah, nor do I. Anyway, let's get into it here. Um, and, and the first team I want to talk about is the Lakers. And it's not so much that I didn't expect the Lakers to be good. I, I picked them to finish fourth in the West. I know you had even higher hopes for this team. But the thing that has really surprised me, and I feel like is probably surprising to you too, as high as you were on this team, is the fact that they have the number one defense in the NBA right now. Which I just, I just did not see that coming. I mean, even though they have obviously some elite defensive talent on this team, starting with Anthony Davis and Danny Green... For them to have the number one defense, I, I don't know. It just I, I thought this team was going to thrive on the offensive side of the ball, and offensively they've been like middle of the pack, not that special. Defensively they've been elite. Um, a couple stats to point to here for how they're doing this: opponents at the rim against Anthony Davis shooting nineteen percent <laughs> so far this year. He has been unbelievable as a backline defender, and. Maybe the most surprising thing to me is the Lakers have been at their best on both sides of the ball, actually, when AD and Dwight Howard have played together. With those two guys on the floor, 77.9 defensive rating and a plus 46.3 net rating. And, you know, when they go with that look, there are some offensive difficulties that we can get into, but they're just huge up front. And... They, and yet still mobile, not like huge and slow to react, right. like huge, but mobile. Like Dwight physically looks great. Like he's lost weight. He's moving better than I think he's moved in like five years. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I was optimistic that he could help the Lakers and that, you know, it wasn't a terrible signing. Like so many people seem to think I, I figured that he would be better than JaVale McGee. And certainly as a guy who would get spot minutes at center would be able to help them. But I Definitely did not see this coming, and I don't know if he can keep it up, but with those two guys on the floor together, like nobody can score in the paint, and, and the Lakers have done a really good job parking those guys close to the rim. In Vogel's scheme, like he said at the start of the season, and they've been executing it really well, they really don't want to switch a lot, and that makes it contingent on their guards to do a really good job applying pressure and also trailing guys over top of screens and allowing their big guys to sit back closer to the rim. And Avery Bradley's done a good job of that. Danny Green has done a good job of that. Even KCP has done a good job of that. Uh, it's just their guards and their bigs working in harmony to make it really tough on opponents to, to get what they want, you know, whether it's behind the three-point arc or at the rim. I don't expect them to finish the season with the top defense in the league, but I'm ready to say that this defensive unit is way, way better than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, maybe they don't finish the, the season number one in defense, but... I think they can maintain a, an elite defense all season. LeBron may never be the all-world defender he once was, but it's pretty damn obvious. He seems to care a lot more about defense through the first couple of weeks of the season than he has in the regular season in at least like three years, right? And he even said, I'm healthier, my quick trigger muscle reaction's back. That stuff matters. Anthony Davis, you know, is going to be a defensive player of the year candidate. Dwight Howard, look, he, even the last few years, as we've all kind of laughed at where his career has gone rebounding and protecting the rim has still really never been an issue for him. It's that he's demanded these stupid post-ups on the offensive end when he's a terrible, in terms of efficiency, post-up player. And he seems to have accepted a role, and why wouldn't he? Because he's now on a team with LeBron James and even Anthony Davis, 
Yeah, on this team, he doesn't really have the equity exactly. to demand anything. And that's honestly, that's a perfect spot for him because he's on a championship contender. He can try to get a ring before the end of his career, but he also can fill a role that he is actually still able to excel at, which is protecting the rim and cleaning the glass. And he's doing that to great effect for this team. And I think, you know, when he is cleaning up the offensive glass and the, the few times they do dump it into him, he's shooting like 79%. He's leading the league in field goal percentage. The Lakers could not have asked for anything more from Dwight Howard these first couple of weeks. I mentioned coming into the season, one thing I really did like about this roster, depth issues and shooting issues aside, is that with Danny Green and Avery Bradley both on this team, both have experience and are used to guarding the opposing team's best perimeter player. And I know Bradley, you know, can't guard threes, but he can guard ones and twos and Green can guard some threes. And so you end up in a situation where LeBron doesn't have to guard the other team's best perimeter player. Hell, he doesn't have to guard the other team's two best offensive weapons some night. So I just think there's a lot of ways that this works in perfect unison. They've got Kuzma back now. I think KCP has been awful, but on the defensive side, he actually hasn't been bad. Frank Vogel, I don't think he's the most creative coach. He's never been a great substitution uh, or like rotation manager, but he's a good defensive coach. Everything is lining up for them to me to actually just maintain a really good defense throughout the season. And they haven't used the LeBron AD pick and roll as much as I would have Assume they would, given that we both thought it would be the most devastating play in basketball this year, and I still think it could be. But I feel like it will be one of those things that when they need to go to it, it will be there, and I think they'll figure that out as the season goes on. And I'm not that concerned about this team eventually being able to score enough to beat you know most teams in the NBA. Yeah, well, I think the thing with that is as long as they're playing a, tra- a traditional center next to AD it's going to be hard to run that LeBron AD pick and roll because there's going to be a guy in the dunker spot essentially, you know, parking an extra defender there in Davis's rolling lane. And their, their answer to that has been, you know, instead of running this pick and roll, let's just post AD up. And he's been really effective at posting up so far. And, you know, they do that whether it's just a straight post up and LeBron's making that entry feed. Sometimes they run the pick and roll and the defense just switches and then they'll post AD against a mismatch. But that has been a huge, huge part of their offense so far, and that's how they're making it work when they have two big guys on the floor. Only other thing I wanted to touch on with the Lakers, Anthony Davis's comments about Chicago. <laughs> it probably doesn't mean anything, but I would assume, based on everything he went through or put himself through last year with the trade demand, based on how well things have started in L.A., and you're playing with LeBron, you look like a championship contender and all this— I just figured if the question of free agency ever came up this season, AD would do the standard, like, look, I'm not thinking about it right now. I want to finish the season. Who knows what happens? I did not expect that he would just straight up answer a question about playing in Chicago with like, well, I'm a free agent next year. You never know what happens. Like, come on, man. Well, he was in Chicago. You know, you got to give the people hope. What, what do you want him to be? You, you want him to be like, oh, you guys got Wendell Carter, man. You'll be fine. <laughs> no, I want him to say... I'm on the Lakers right now. We're pretty damn good. No disrespect to my hometown, but I'm not thinking about that right now. Yeah, that's fair. One last thing I'll say about the Lakers' uh, defense, and one thing that surprised me, is that they're 24th in defensive rebounding, despite putting all that size on the floor. And I don't know if that is because AD and Dwight have just been going all out trying to block shots and maybe gotten themselves out of position, Uh, but... um, pretty strange that they're 24th in defensive rebound rate and I, I really expected this to be one of the better rebounding teams in the league so something to keep our eye on there let's move on to a team in the east that is making waves and that's the Miami Heat uh, a team that 
I expected to be pretty good, but also a team that I expected to play some pretty ugly, grimy basketball games. And that hasn't really been the case. Their defense has been about as good as I expected it to be. But offensively, they have been so much more fluid and connected and fun than I could have possibly expected. They have a lot more shot creation than I thought they would. Obviously, the, the guys that they have managed to dig up have really helped with that. Kendrick Nunn, chief among them. So this team's 5-1 and one right now, and they just absolutely shellacked the Rockets, who we will talk about in a minute as well. What do you see from the Heat so far? I see the makings of an Eastern Conference contender. Wow. Full stop. Wow. And I say full stop, but I'm, I'm going to continue. Um, <laughs> this team is good. They're deep. They're well coached. They have a superstar at the top of the roster. They defend like crazy. I've said it like a thousand times since they put this team together that they make it really annoying and somewhat scary to play against them between how hard they play, how well they defend, how kind of grimy and nasty they are, and yes, a little bit how dirty they can be too with some of these players. Like you do not want to play this team. And I, I just see them as kind of like this rising power in the East. Philly and Milwaukee, I think, are still better teams, but are they better than a team like Miami by enough of a margin that I won't even give Miami a chance? No, like no way. And you put Jimmy Butler in a playoff series to me against any team in, in the East right now, and I'm at least giving that team a puncher's chance. And and they did this mostly without Jimmy Butler. What's he played? Two games now, I think? Three, Three. games? They're two yeah. and one with, with him in the lineup. They, they've gone off to a great start. They have the best net rating in the league through six games. They're crushing teams. What did you make of Butler's comments about Philadelphia and how he sort of hinted that there was some ugliness behind the scenes that led to his departure. Not surprised at all. Like, we know the kind of guy Jimmy Butler is and the kind of personality he is and the way he probably rubs people the wrong way in almost every stop he goes and also the way a lot of people probably rub him the wrong way because he looks at it as like, you're not doing it the right way, you're not doing it my way, blah, blah, blah. And again, this is why I think Miami is so perfect for him because I don't think there is a franchise, I don't think there's an executive that match exactly who Jimmy Butler is, like the Miami Heat and Pat Riley. And so, yeah, I I think he probably had a problem with, I don't, I don't know, maybe he had a problem with Ben Simmons' desire to get better. Maybe he had a problem, he clearly seemed to have a problem with Brett Brown early in his right. stay there. Uh, maybe he had a problem with Elton Brand and the way they, like, I, I don't know. Like, people were trying to pinpoint yesterday, well, who was his problem with? It's like, yo, it's Jimmy Butler. His problem was literally everybody except Joel Embiid. Well, he did say in that same scrum that, or I guess it wasn't a scrum, it was just an interview with Chris Haynes, but he did say that he and Embiid still talk almost every day, and he didn't mention anybody else in the yeah. organization. Another thing I'll say about the Heat, like as good as their defense has been, they are surrendering a lot of opponent threes, and opponents are shooting 28% on yeah. wide-open threes that's against That's going to come up. So there's going to be some regression there, but one thing that's really stuck out to me is that their quick-strike offense has looked really good. They're pushing the pace like I haven't seen them do in the last couple of years and really doing a good job of just like cutting and moving the ball. And obviously with Bam in the middle, he's a guy who runs the floor extremely well for a big man. So I'm curious to see if they keep that up, if they continue to be a kind of, you know, push the pace type of team and, and a team that's going to run off of misses. And they've done a fantastic job of doing that so far. So uh, a great start for them. And I don't know if I'm quite ready to put them in the, the contender class in the East with... Milwaukee and Philly, but they've certainly made a strong case in the first couple of weeks. If I was a team looking to 2021, whether that's Giannis or whoever else, 
thinking that you're going to be in the mix for a free agent, I would be scared shitless of Pat Riley and the Man Heat right now because I know it's super early in early in this season, let alone to talk about 2021, but they look like they're going to have a competitive team. You know, I'm not saying a contender, but a competitive team for the next couple of years with South Beach, a superstar already in tow, and max cap space that summer. That's pretty frightening if you're the rest of the league. And I'll also say, a couple of years ago when they locked themselves into those contracts for like waiters james johnson olenic it seemed like they were kind of saddling themselves in purgatory for a while and that the future wasn't particularly bright they didn't have a ton of exciting young talent on the roster suddenly they have a lot of exciting young talent on the roster like adebayo's looked great tyler hero is looking like a super good find at what 13th in the draft i think the future's suddenly looking pretty exciting for miami and um I agree with you. I think 2021, like, they are going to be as big a player as anybody else on the free agent market. Yeah, Pat Riley doesn't do purgatory. Pat Riley would rather make a deal with the devil and walk through hell than do purgatory. Well, they've been in purgatory, though, for the last four years, basically. Like, they've been a mediocre team. I I guess I just didn't necessarily see what they were building towards, and now the picture has become quite a bit clearer, and it's looking quite a bit sunnier. Let's move back over to the West. A couple of teams in the Northwest Division that we expected to have killer regular seasons. One of them, the Denver Nuggets, we both picked to finish with the number one seed in the West. And both they and the Utah Jazz have gotten off to somewhat rocky starts. I want to start with the Nuggets uh, just because they, to me, have looked worse of those two teams. Their offense just has not been the worrying machine that I kind of expected it to be. Nikola Jokic, a lot of people's sort of trendy, fringy pick for MVP coming into this year, has looked not remotely like an MVP candidate. He's actually looked kind of miserable, dragging himself up and down the floor, and just hasn't really imposed himself on games the way that we were seeing at the end of last season when he really took off. And I think the rest of the Nuggets have just sort of followed suit, and and that's been the biggest issue for them, is that their best player has not been his best self. Uh, any Anything else that you're seeing from the Nuggets so far that's giving you some concern? Well, the two things are, one, Jokic and the overall effort of the team. And I, I don't usually like to just say this team needs to try harder, but with the Nuggets, I really think that's part of the problem. And Coach Malone has talked about it multiple times. It's not often you see a head coach of a contender call out his team and specifically their effort this early in the season. Mike Malone's done it twice already because there have been multiple games where the Nuggets just don't look interested or I don't know, maybe they think that they've already arrived and they can just show up and turn it on in the fourth quarter and beat teams. They're good, but they're not that good. They can't do that. I'm not saying you've got to go balls to the wall, 48 minutes, 82 games, but they get to play a lot harder than they're playing right now. And it starts from the top and it starts with Jokic. I made a joke after the first couple games that he looked doughier than ever and it didn't seem to matter because the fourth quarters were coming and he was literally just picking teams apart and the Nuggets were still winning. Well, now it does look like it matters. He looks straight up out of shape. And I know he never looked like a world-renowned physical specimen to begin with, but he's looked better than this. He just doesn't seem like he's there. You know, and I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just fatigue from, you know, his first playoff run last year and he's just kind of getting back into shape and doesn't really think it's as big a deal right now in November when he now knows what kind of like May basketball is like. Maybe all that plays into it. But the fact of the matter is he doesn't look like he's in good shape right now. He doesn't seem to look like he cares all that much right now. And it seems to be bleeding into the rest of his team. That's a problem. Uh, yeah, I agree with most of that. I don't know that I get the sense that he doesn't care. He He's looked somewhat frustrated out there and especially with the amount of fouls that he's picking up like that has been a big part of this poor start that he's had I think as he just 
in a lot of games hasn't really been able to stay on the floor for as long as he would maybe like. But again, I think that ties into what you were saying about him being out of shape. And if he's not moving as quickly, then he's going to use his hands more and commit more fouls. If he just like doesn't have his legs under him at the end of games, then I mean, that will help explain why he's shooting like 30% from three and not really making an impact in the post the way that he was last season. I think their entire offensive system flows through him. And if he's not all there, then it's going to make it really difficult. Like there aren't any other links in the chain that can hold up to scrutiny, especially given the fact that, you know, Jamal Murray was one of these guys we pointed to as a swing guy at the start of the season. And he, to me, has looked like the same guy. You know, his shot selection is still a bit shaky and he still makes questionable decisions at times. He has not been any more efficient as a scorer. He hasn't looked any better as a defender. He looks like the same guy. And that's okay. Like, the Nuggets can still be a really good team with Jamal Murray being that guy, and he can still be a really good player. But if they wanted to ascend to the elite and be, like, a true championship contender, then they need him to be better than that, and they obviously need Jokic to be better. I don't have anything else to say about the Nuggets unless you do. If we're going to move on to Utah, the one thing I was going to say with the Jazz is that what's shocked me is how bad their offense has been. And I know they've never been a good offensive team, right? Like, they've relied on their defense, but the whole point of trading for Mike Conley and signing Bojan Bogdanovic, who's actually been really good for them, was that they would now have this really good two-way team. Bogdanovic, especially to me, is like the perfect secondary tertiary scorer. Everything just seemed to line up where they would still have an elite defense and have at least an above-average offense. I believe they're 26th right now in offensive rating. It is kind of stunning to me that a team with Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, who has been great, Bojan Bogdanovic, Joe Ingles, who hasn't been great, but also they, I, I think they get to move him back in the starting lineup. Rudy Gobert, rim running. Like, how is this team not scoring at an above average rate? I mean, Conley obviously just hasn't been able to shoot the ball. Right. Maybe the more concerning thing is that he hasn't been getting to the rim at all either, which is, I feel like everyone expected that it was going to be so much easier for him to get to the rim playing in this spread offense. He now looks like he's aged five him. years. That's definitely concerning. One stat I'll throw at you. Um, and maybe you can guess. What do you think the Jazz's offensive rating is with Donovan Mitchell on the bench? Wow, I feel like you're about to blow my mind right now. So I'm going to go high and say it's like 110. <laughs> with Donovan Mitchell on the bench? I thought Because I thought you were doing like you'll never guess. Like I thought you were going to say it's actually no, 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 good. No, it's bad. It's oh, low. okay, okay. So it's it's indicative of how good he's been and how bad the rest of the team is. Yeah. More so what? indicative, I think, of how bad the rest of the like team is. 95. 82. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, That'd be the worst offense in league history by, like, 13 full points. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I figured that their bench was going to have trouble scoring. And I thought maybe moving Ingles to the bench would help with that. But Ingles hasn't been particularly good on the offensive end yet either. So it's just been a disaster when Mitchell sits. And, like, the whole point of getting Conley was that they were going to take some pressure off of Mitchell as a primary ball handler. And that just hasn't really happened because Conley hasn't been a dangerous enough scorer to really take any pressure off of Mitchell. And it's still Mitchell who's having to do most of the heavy lifting at that end of the floor. And as I said, they've just been a disaster when he hasn't been out there. So I expect that to improve. Like they're going to shoot the ball better. Conley will be better. Ingles will be better. But I think it's worth noting, I mean, and this is something I pointed out when they made the trade, but it just didn't seem like something that would take that long for Conley to adjust to. But as a pick-and-roll point guard, he is much more used to playing with a skilled short roller 
like Marc Gasol than he is with a straight dive man like Gobert. And there are benefits to having a dive man like Gobert in that you can kind of just throw lobs up there and he can go and get him. But I think, you know, it also makes things a little bit more difficult because your offense can stall out when there's a guy who defenses can switch against. And if defenses are overplaying the lob, like it's, I think it limits your options in a lot of ways in the pick and roll. And maybe Conley's still adapting to that a bit. Given how bad their offense has been, they're still four and two. And overall, I still, I, I actually think they've looked noticeably better than the Nuggets, for example. So it's not like they're in panic mode. They just need to figure out how to get their offense clicking. And some of that really might just be Mike Conley looking like Mike Conley. Yeah. And the fact that they're still second in the league in defense has to be pretty encouraging because, you know, the kind of through line was they traded defense for offense in the offseason. Like, they went and got Bogdanovich basically at the cost of Derek Favors. And what was that going to do to their defense? They don't really have a ton of size on the wing, and and they were maybe going to be vulnerable there in a way that they hadn't been in the past. But with Gobert patrolling the back line, it just seems like they're always going to be elite. So ideally, they get things going at the offensive end, and things will start to turn around. A team that certainly does not have the second-best defense in the league is the Houston Rockets. Uh, they are 4-3 and three after beating a pretty bad Memphis Grizzlies team last night that was playing without Jaron Jackson. And they get a little bit of boost uh, to their defense in that game because they're playing against one of the worst offensive teams in the league. But before that, like I mentioned off the top, they got utterly shellacked by the Heat in a game that they were at one point trailing 59-18. to 18. And They were down 36 after one quarter, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I think it was 46 to 14, so 32, yeah. Okay. And, and yeah, they were down as much as 41 in the second quarter. Uh, it was basically garbage time the entire second half. Their defense looks like a total train wreck to me. And this is one where, I mean, we can talk about some numbers, but just the eye test basically tells a tale of a really poor defensive team. And one that, the things that have stuck out to me, transition, abysmal. And that's compounded by the fact that they shoot a ton of threes which means they miss a lot of shots. And that puts them into transition a lot more than they would probably like. And they just have not been doing a good job of getting back, of tracking shooters in transition, of protecting the rim in transition. This team also is like, I don't know that I've ever seen a team get burned this badly by back cuts. The Heat in particular did an unbelievable job of picking them apart with cuts. I think I counted like 12 times in the first half alone where they either scored or got fouled on a back cut. The Grizzlies were kind of punishing them with cuts too. It's just like the inattentiveness off ball is a huge issue. And uh, their three-point defense has been terrible. And that's one thing that you could maybe expect to stabilize. Uh, I think they've been giving up the worst opponent three-point shooting percentage in the league. But at the end of the day... There's going to be some team that finishes 30th in opponent three-point percentage, and a team that doesn't do a good job of helping and recovering or closing out on shooters is going to be a team that is more likely to surrender a high opponent three-point percentage, and that's been the case for the Rockets so far. They haven't done a good job of defending the three-point line. They're giving up a ton of threes, and they're giving up a ton of open threes. And it's just, we kind of saw this coming. I don't know that I expected them to be quite this bad, but their defense was a point of concern, and we talked about it preseason and said, that was the reason we didn't think they were a real championship contender. I mean, it's uh, I, like, I don't know what the solution here is for them because they don't really have a lot of defensive talent. And I don't know what the fix is here aside from just playing a bit harder. My concern with the Rockets from a big picture perspective is that 
I don't think they've looked impressive once this season. Like, maybe the first half of the first game against Milwaukee, but then Milwaukee turned on the Jets in the second half, and it was over. And then you look at since opening night, they barely beat a banged-up Pelican squad at home. They barely beat a bad Thunder team, again, in Houston. They give up 158 points to an atrocious Wizards team. They lose to the Nets in Brooklyn and, like, were down, I think, almost 20 in that game. As you mentioned, they had spanked by Miami in what might go down as one of the worst blowouts of the year. They barely beat, and well, I guess they, they had pulled away from the Grizzlies. It ended up a seven-point spread, but it was worse than that. But still, like, they didn't look dominant in that game against the Grizzlies. They have not played that tough of a schedule, and yet I don't think there's been one game where I've been legitimately impressed by them, and that's a problem. Like, we're seven games in now. You can't give me one, two good games if you're a championship contender with two superstars on the roster. The only thing going for them right now is that their next three games are Golden State, Chicago, and New Orleans. And I would assume at some point there's just too much talent here for it not to click. But like if they come out of this week, say only two and one, or they be, they barely beat those three teams, at that point we're 10 games in, and I think you're getting close to just being like the Rockets are who they are, and this is who they are. They're a terrible defensive team who just can't put 48 minutes of good basketball together, and that's not going to cut it in the West. Obviously, you know, the Paul for Westbrook swap was going to make them worse defensively. And you can see it. Like, Westbrook as a help defender, it just isn't all there. Like, there have been so many times where he is the guy who is supposed to make that weak side rotation to bump the roll man, and he is either late getting there, or when he gets there, he basically just gets out of the way and doesn't provide a whole lot of resistance. With him and Harden on the floor together, the Rockets have been really bad. With him on the floor without Harden, they have been awful. And with Harden on the floor without Westbrook, they've been pretty good. So I don't think that pairing has been particularly successful so far. Offensively, I think it's making it more difficult for Harden because there is just an extra defender straying off of Westbrook, mucking things up and making it harder for him to drive. I do think this is an encouraging sign to me, the fact that they're sixth in offense right now, despite the fact that as a team they're shooting 31% from three and Harden is shooting 25% from three. And he's shooting 38% from the field, but his two-point percentage actually hasn't changed from where it's been the last few years. It's just the threes. And if the three-point percentage comes up to where it's been the last few years, like if I did the math, and if he shoots threes, or if he had been shooting threes at the same percentage he shot them at last season, he would be averaging 41.4 points per game so far. I think that's encouraging. The fact that he's shooting 38% from the field, 25% from three, and still has a 58.8% true shooting percentage and a 27.5 PER. So ultimately, I think their offense is going to be, like it's, again, sixth in the league right now. It could very well end up number one in the NBA. Yeah. And, and that will offset some of the defensive concerns. But I just think come playoff time, a defense this bad, I just don't, I, I don't think that's going to cut it. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. We're talking about the Jazz and the Nuggets and the Rockets. And then obviously the Warriors have fallen off like crazy. And you get to a point, and I know it's only a couple weeks in, but when we came into this season, we're like, oh, it's this season of parody. There's so many contenders, blah, blah, blah. And it's like we're only six, seven, eight games in, 
And to me, it's already looking like, nah, I think the two LA teams are the only true contenders in the West. Uh, I, I think it's a little too early to say that. And I still think the Jazz, especially if they get it together at the offensive end, I, I think could join that conversation. But, I mean, we were already sort of saying that at the beginning of the season. Like you said, the only thing that can prevent uh, an, a Clippers-Lakers Western Conference final is seeding. So you were already sort of leaning in that direction. And obviously, the, you know, the star talent in those two teams is far beyond what you'd see anywhere else. But I think the Jazz are good enough defensively and have enough potential offensively to, to get into that mix. The Nuggets, maybe I'm a little bit more concerned about. And the Rockets, I'm, I'm really concerned about in, in that sense. Like, I'm, I don't think they're going to miss the playoffs. Right. But I am close to, like, ruling them out of that mix as a championship contender because I just don't see how this situation really improves and and one thing i've noticed is like clint capella hasn't been good and this is like a two-year trend now where he has not really moved the needle for them at either end of the floor and again like pj tucker at 35 years old cannot hold this defense together by himself uh he's already starting to show signs of i think decline at that end of the floor and he's just being asked to do a little bit too much like i don't know i don't know where they go from there but it's not looking great on that side of the ball Let's talk about the Mavs, though. They look really good. They definitely look like the type of team that can contend for a playoff spot in the West, at least. And that's this is still with Porzingis not fully rounding into form yet. The Lakers-Mavs game on Friday night, which was an absolute instant classic. If Porzingis shows up, the, the Mavs probably win that game. And he had a good first half. And you could it's almost like you could see the bounce leave his body as the game wore on. He just has to get his legs back under him. The guy went 20 months without playing a game. Like the game against the Lakers on Friday was the first time he had cracked the 37-minute mark since January of 2018, almost two full years. It's been a really long time since this guy's played big-minute basketball. I think he'll round into form. And other than that, I mean, it's a Dallas team. Like Rick Carlisle is an excellent coach who milks every ounce out of every bit of talent he's got on the roster. He finds a way for them to have a functional offense regardless of who's on the court. And right now they have the number one offense in the league. And most of that is just because Luka Doncic is an absolute freaking stud. Forget how good he is for his age. He's just a superstar, flat out. Guy's averaging almost 27 points, 10 rebounds, and 10 assists a game, a steal and a half, shooting 46% from the field. His effective field goal percentage is like 55%. He is indescribable. His passing vision is... Like, oh, he might be like the best passer ever in yeah, the game right now. It's, it's unbelievable. And um, the Mavs have the top offense in the league. Thanks in large part to his heroics. Like, I still am not crazy about his shot selection and some of the step backs he takes. Like, I, I know that he can hit them, but he's still not like, I, I don't think a good enough three point shooter to justify a shot selection. But that's really the only thing that I can I can ding him for because the way that he orchestrates that Mavericks offense is just like he does everything, and, and he is just spoon feeding guys open looks on trip after trip after trip down the floor. And um, it, it's it's unbelievable how well he's playing right now. Um, the the Mavs bench has been really great, and they run this DeLon Wright Jalen Brunson backcourt pairing that reminds me a lot of the 2017-18 Raptors when they would run DeLon and Fred VanVleet out there. DeLon's been great for the Mavs. DeLon has been unbelievable at both ends of the floor. I really like Brunson too. Like it's just nice having two ball handlers out there with a bench unit, uh, and. There was a game they played against the Nuggets, actually, when they came from behind to win. Those two guys collectively just absolutely carved up the Nuggets' second unit. 
And the Mavs always seem to just like cobble together a really solid bench. And, and Brunson has basically taken on the J.J. Barea role of undersized bench PG that uh, just manages to wiggle his way into tight spaces and, um, you know, con- conduct an effective offense. Um, Porzingis, I'll say this. He's a great fit with Doncic. And I think his rim protection has been huge. Like defensively, he's been really solid. I think he's just a bit overrated offensively, and that's fine. Like, he doesn't have to be an offensive superstar for him to be a super effective secondary piece on this team. But, look, like, even he's shooting 38.5% from three, which is huge. Uh, but even with that, he's under 54% true shooting. And this is a guy who is seven foot three, who's shooting 46% from two-point range. And I think he just, like, doesn't really exert himself inside the arc. Like, he's not a big post-up guy. Uh, he's not a big offensive rebounder. And so he kind of makes it palatable, I think, to switch the Doncic-Porzingis pick-and-roll. His teams don't really have to worry about him necessarily, like, going to work on the block or feasting on a mismatch. He can shoot over guys, but still 46% from two-point range. I, I Like, that's not scaring you a whole lot. So I would maybe like to see him exert himself a little bit more from two-point range. I just I don't know if that's really his game. Um, at least we haven't seen it so far. So I'm not crazy about him as an offensive player, or I'll say that I don't think he's as good as some people like to make him out to be offensively, but I think defensively he's been really solid. And again, he's just a great fit with Doncic. So I don't know that it necessarily matters. To me, this is looking like a playoff team. Yeah, and I was mentioning how bad the Rockets' results have been despite their 4-3 and three record, whatever it is. The Mavs, on the other hand, like their two losses were by two points to a good Portland team and in OT against the Lakers, which was a great game. They gave a contender a good fight. Their wins, they've beaten bad teams like the Wizards, the Pelicans, and the Cavs by a combined 35 points, and they won in Denver. Their win profile is good. They compete in games they lose. They've got kind of a soft schedule coming up the next week or so. Like This is a team that, yeah, I think they should be a West playoff team. Yeah, I, I, It would be nice if they had a little bit more reliability on the wing. I think that's the one thing they're missing right now. But again, I, I definitely think they have enough to make the playoffs in the West. Um, back over to the East, let's talk about the Raptors. This team obviously loses Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green. We are not entirely sure what Siakam is going to look like as a number one option. We're not entirely sure what Kyle Lowry is going to look like in his age 34 season with a ton of miles on his body and an injury history. This team's looked pretty good. And I think... First of all, Siakam has really taken that primary scoring role and run with it. Like He has not looked uncomfortable at all. I know the turnovers have been up, and that's something he's going to need to work on. He's fouling a bit more than we're used to seeing, and he's going to have to remedy that. But on the whole, like he has remained a super efficient scorer, and he has managed to scale that up to incredible volume. So... <laughs> I don't know. Like It just seems like nothing is off the table for this guy as far as his development goes. No, Pascal Siakam has, in every game the Raptors have played so far, there has been at least one stretch, and it's usually been early in the game, where he doesn't look good or comfortable, or whatever the case may be. He's in foul trouble. He's turning the ball over. And then by the end of the game, he's got like 25-5-5 at minimum on pretty good efficiency, except for the game against Milwaukee when Giannis had his way with him, which, fair enough. Pascal Siakam looks like an all-NBA player. And he's hitting pull-up threes yes. above the break, which no, he, is like, you know, the one thing basically that we were saying was missing from his game and that would make him basically unguardable. At this point, like Giannis is the only guy I've seen who's been able to guard him because yes. 
what guy has the size and the quickness to guard him out on the perimeter and in the post to deal with his shiftiness and his spin move. Like, it, it's a combination of skills that is just going to make him a devastating offensive player, I think, for a number of years to come. So here's the thing. I said coming into the year that I thought between the defensive makeup of this roster, Nick Nurse's creativity, which we've seen in playoff series and like matchup making, and the overall depth of this roster that I thought they could be the third best team in the East. I thought they had an outside chance to get to the East Finals. And I thought that the only thing to me that would determine, a couple things that would determine whether they could actually be fringe contenders again this year without even making a move would be if Pascal Siakam actually legitimately looks like a true star, like number one option on offense. And if one of Kyle Lowry or Marcus Saul could be like a legit secondary scoring option and look like the guys they were even a year or two ago. Well, check both those damn boxes because Pascal Siakam looks like an offensive star who, by the way, is has also been one of the, what, like the 10 best defensive players in the league this year, maybe? And Kyle Lowry, yeah, he's not going to be this good all year, but the fact that he can all of a sudden get to the rim again and can get his shot off from anywhere like that, forget how unsustainable the shooting is because he's had some crazy shooting nights, yeah. but it's the fact that he's getting to the rim and looks quicker again and he, again, Kyle Lowry doesn't need to be like a 20 to 25 point a game scorer. If Pascal Siakam is anywhere close to this consistently, Kyle Lowry just has to be a solid number two. And he's more than capable of being that. So all of a sudden we're back in a situation where, okay, if Pascal Siakam is this good and Kyle Lowry is just a solid number two on the offensive end, we know they're going to be a great defensive team. Why can't this team at least be in the mix to come out of the East? Not not beat one of the LA teams and win a title, but at least be in the mix to come out of the East. Well, we haven't seen them play Philly yet, and they obviously had a tough time with Milwaukee puncturing that defense. Uh, they just weren't really getting to the rim at all. Siakam really struggled, and they were carried in that game by just a transcendent Lowry performance. And like you said about Lowry, like you said, you know the the shooting might not be sustainable, but at least he's getting to the rim. I think that's the part to me that might not be sustainable. He's shooting almost 60% from two-point range right now when his career average is below 50%. So I don't necessarily expect that to keep up, both the volume and the way that he's finishing at the rim right now. But he's looked unbelievable. And, you know, my big point of concern, I think, is that they're just so thin in the backcourt. Like, they need another guard really badly because both Lowry and Van Vliet are playing, like, 39 minutes a game. I believe they're t- they're and one number one and number three in minutes per game. Like, that is just not sustainable at all. And, uh, like, whether it's Terrence Davis soaking up more minutes, whether they can get anything at all from... I mean, Stanley Johnson doesn't really handle the ball or can't really play a backcourt position, so I don't know if he helps. Pat McCaw is now out indefinitely with a knee issue, so I don't know. they got to find somebody who they can sign, I guess, or it's just not sustainable to play those guys as much as they've been playing them. And another thing that I don't think is sustainable is their at-rim defense because uh, opponents are shooting 49% in the restricted area against this team, which is the best mark in the league. And I think they will still remain one of the better rim-protecting teams in the league, you know, between Gasol and Ibaka and OG Ananobi, who has been... To my mind, like you say, Siakam has been one of the 10 best defensive players in the league. I actually don't think Siakam's been that great defensively. I think the, the increased offensive load has taken a couple things off the table for him at the defensive end. Ananobi has stepped into that role. Like he, to me, has been one of the five best, one of the five best defenders in the league. And he was always a solid perimeter defender who could switch and play multiple positions, but he didn't put up like the defensive counting stats. He wasn't getting a lot of steals or a lot of blocks. And now he is ripping steals and blocking everything in sight. And like as a guy who has been active as a helper and 
I mean, on ball, he's just been an absolute menace. Like, he, to me, has taken a leap. And even offensively, I know he's not doing a ton of stuff with the ball in his hands, but his ability to attack off of the catch is a really important element for this Raptors offense and has kind of kept it flowing in spite of the lack of, you know, tertiary scoring. Between Lowry, OG, and even Siakam, I think they have three guys that could, will be in contention for the two all-defensive teams. Yeah, like Lowry. Lowry has been an absolute hound on the. De- I mean, he's always been a good defender, but yeah. him and Van Vliet, actually, if you look at the the deflections they've created, the way they've bodied guys up, always as always in the post when mismatched, like they have been so good. And then you throw in OG and Pascal's versatility, and like one of Gasol's obviously been a tire fire on the offensive end, but you throw one of him or Ibaka as the last line of defense with those four guys in front of them, good luck scoring. And this is a stat I tweeted out yesterday, but I just want to repeat it. Uh, Lowry is somehow contesting almost four shots at the That's rim big man per game, and he's holding opponents to 40.9% shooting on those shots, yeah. which is just you. Well, you mentioned it. He's a good stretch five. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, he, he is like basically plays like a big man. He just happens to have point guard skills. He's like a five foot eleven Nikola Jokic. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, another East team and one that hasn't maybe met expectations so far is the Nets. And um, again, this is where you know expectations are always relative because I was really worried about the Nets defense, and so far it has been really bad the way that I expected it to be. And I don't. I don't know that I would expect the team as a whole to look as bad as it's looked through seven games, but I, I, I figure that they would have some concerns defensively because of their wing rotation. And, you know, up front, I think the issue is with, with Jared Allen, he just doesn't really have the strength to deal with these big hulking centers. And like DeMontis Sabonis did a number on him a couple of games ago. And DeAndre Jordan just looks washed to me. Like he plays with zero physicality, He doesn't move around particularly well. And he doesn't really seem to have much explosiveness left. Like, he barely gets off of the ground. And his splits versus Allen are, like, hilarious. And we knew this was going to happen. Yeah. With Jared Allen on the floor, the Nets are a plus 12.1 net rating. With DeAndre on the floor, they're a minus 13.4. And I know there's some context that we need to add to that, like who they're playing with and, and opponent shooting luck. But... It's been noticeable if you watch DeAndre. Like, he just does not have a ton left in the tank. And that is a massive swing um, when Allen sits. Yeah, and this was my concern when they signed him. And, like, again, like, I get that he's friends with KD and Kyrie, I guess, and that signing him, it sounds like, actually was part of the deal of, like, getting KD. That's fine. I understand. You've got to make some sacrifices to get superstars. But guess what? You've already got Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving now signed long-term, I think minimum three years before the options kick in. You don't need to give DeAndre Jordan 21 minutes a game. And I know that doesn't even sound like a lot, but Jared Allen's playing 27 minutes a game. If DeAndre being here is the difference between even three or four extra minutes for Jared Allen, that is an issue because this team isn't good enough to just get by on Kyrie. Like we've, We know that meh, flawed teams with Kyrie Irving as the centerpiece aren't good enough, right? So like the margin for error is not very big here. You can't be giving DeAndre Jordan 21 minutes a game and having that cut into Jared Allen's minutes when he does just complement this team so much better and it's just a flat out better big man in 2019. And speaking of, you know, the bench being disappointing, we have to chalk that up to Spencer Dinwiddie as well. Like he's had a really rough start and that's where you talk about, you know, sort of grounding those numbers in some context because the bench as a whole, I think has been pretty poor. And this was a really strong point for the Nets last year was how good their bench was. 
and that hasn't been the case at all this year. And I guess it's just like a long-winded way of saying I don't think anyone should be laying this at Kyrie Irving's feet. He's been awesome. And the Nets have far bigger structural problems that have nothing to do with him. I personally believe their struggles are because he failed to take his hat off in that picture, <laughs> for that team picture. Yeah, and I think, look, it's important to make a distinction, too, about like what his teammates think about him and what management may think of him. And right. like, management may have been alarmed at how he carried himself during that China trip, but it doesn't seem like his teammates have any issue with him whatsoever. And we don't really know what's in their heads, and maybe... Maybe they aren't loving how much he's dominating the ball, but it's hard to argue with the results. Like Offensively, he's been spectacular so far, and uh, it's really the guys around him who haven't been pulling their weight. Yeah, there's no complaints about Kyrie Irving on the court, and anyone who does have a complaint clearly has not watched Kyrie Irving on the court this season because he's been remarkable. Yeah, and like I said, I would expect them to get back on track and get back up over 500. I think they'll end up slotting in as the sixth team in the East behind the five that we talked about earlier, and... Um, I guess it'll just be, uh, what's the opposite of a dog fight <laughs> for those last two spots in the East playoff like picture? A turtle, a cat fight, a turtle shell off. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, for, for the seven and eight spots in the East, it's just, I don't know. Uh, I mean, maybe the, the Pacers will, will slide in and be an, like, especially when Oladipo comes back, I think they'll, they'll end up part of that playoff picture, but. All right, let's just go there then, because there's two teams we have left to talk about. It's the Pacers and the Bucks. So let's just go Pacers, a couple minutes each. Okay. Yeah, I think they got off to a terrible start. They lost twice to a Blake Griffinless Pistons team that looks lifeless in their own right. So that was very concerning. But they've rebounded. I think they've won three in a row or back yeah. to back. They're back to 500 now. They played and a cupcake schedule. That they have. should be noted. And and look, I don't believe in the Pacers the way you do, but I will. Just them getting back to 500, regardless of the schedule, they. If they can even be anywhere in the vicinity of 500 by the time Oladipo gets back, and Oladipo is even like 50% of what he was, the East is bad enough that that is fine. That's more than enough to make the playoffs. Like I mentioned it at the beginning of the show. Between like 6 and 15 in the East right now, who has really impressed you? Okay, Brooklyn probably ends up 6 because there's too much talent there. After that, like I don't know. Do you really see Orlando just running away with a 7 seed at some point? Like, I don't. Like There's... The East is not good, and a team like the Pacers, with the way Malcolm Brogdon is playing right now, he looks like a stud. Um, you know, you all of a sudden start, the wheels are in motion, where you're like, okay, like, Brogdon, Oladipo, one of Sabonis or Turner, and then you can turn one of them into other, like, all of a sudden you can see that bright future for the Pacers that, you know, most people did anticipate until a couple weeks ago. Yeah, so the thing with the Pacers right now, you mentioned the loss, the losses, to the Blakeless Pistons, which is just a bad look. Um, they've played a super soft schedule. And on top of Oladipo being out, Malcolm Turner is now out, and he's being listed week to week with an ankle sprain, uh, which sounds worse than day to day. And then uh, Sabonis goes down with a calf injury, and neither of them played last game. And Goga Batadze stepped up and played a really nice game in, in beating the Bulls. They've got great centers. It's just a question of how this rotation is actually going to look and how it's going to work because, man, did Sabonis look good in that game against the Nets. Like, he is so clearly a natural five to me. And I think even this early in the season, it seems clear that playing him and Turner big minutes together is not the answer. Because as a four, I just think Sabonis is overextended defensively. Having to chase guys out on the perimeter is not what he's good at. He doesn't have the lateral quickness. As a five, I think he can be passable and maybe even solid. Like, and offensively, he just like 
can destroy guys. But with the two of them together, like it just it hasn't looked all that good at either end. And and both of them have been really good individually. And Batadze, like all three of those guys individually have looked great. But I think they need to figure out a way to sort out the, that sort of front court helicopter rotation. And it's probably going to involve trading one of them. And I think that could be a really good thing because if they can get like a high-end wing who can play both ends of the floor and Oladipo comes back, you know, looking more or less like himself, I really like this team's ceiling because there is a lot of talent here. It's just a question of the roster balance and getting everything to fit together. And like you said, Brogdon has been awesome. Like he has been absolutely as good as you could possibly hope that he would be. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just hope to see them figure it out. Yeah, well, talk about Malcolm Brogdon. You know who would look really good if they had Malcolm Brogdon right now? <laughs> yeah. The Bucks. Uh-huh. Because as solid a start as they've gotten off to, I think they're 5-2, and 4-2 and two with a great net ratings. They've been shala- They Who'd they destroy last night? Uh, the Timberwolves. Right. So their net ratings up over plus 10. They look really good, blah, blah, blah. Giannis looks like the MVP candidate we knew he would be. Their supporting cast does not look good enough for this team to contend for a championship. And Chris Middleton has started to pick it up after a slow start. Bledsoe has not been good. Malcolm Brogdon was already good enough for this team. But if you take the Malcolm Brogdon that we've seen in Indiana, and I know the numbers wouldn't be the same because he just wouldn't have the same kind of role behind Giannis, but like, man, do the Bucks miss Malcolm Brogdon. And it's not just the shooting and like the over the raw numbers. It's the little things. Like, for example, Malcolm Brogdon was sneaky good at getting to the rim and puncturing opposing defenses. You know who's not good at getting to the rim this season? The Milwaukee Bucks? The Milwaukee Bucks. Their shot profile isn't exactly... They're still taking a lot of threes, but they are not getting those freebies at the rim anymore, and that's a problem. They were second in the league in attempts in the restricted area last year, and, and I think this they're year? down to like dead last. Um, and obviously that's not all Brogdon, but yeah, he certainly helped just as an off-the-catch attacker a guy who could really drive in a straight line. He is strong. He is decisive. He is physical. And it's just really hard to keep him out of the paint. And I agree. Like, the supporting cast hasn't looked especially good. Brooke Lopez still looks like he's haunted by memories of the FIBA World Cup. Eric Bledsoe looks like he hasn't fully recovered his confidence after last year's playoff flameout. And... So I don't know. I mean, like, they have a full season to figure it out. And like you said, they're 5-2 and two with a double-digit net rating. And their two losses are games in which they blew, like, 20-point leads. So they could very easily be 7-0 and oh right now. Also, Giannis is insane. He's insane. Yeah. These, you want to hear Giannis's per 36 numbers? Give me them. 31.5 points, 15.9 rebounds, 8.4 assists, 1.3 steals, and 1.8 blocks. That dude is a freak. And, like, it doesn't even necessarily matter that the complementary talent isn't as good as it could be or ought to be. They could still win the championship this year because he is that good. And the rest of the guys just have to be good enough. And honestly, that's what continues to make it so flummoxing and frustrating that they let Brogdon walk. And, and a lot of people will say, oh, man, it's because they gave Eric Bledsoe that extension and... They paid Bledsoe instead of paying Brogdon, but it did not have to be either or. They could have paid them both. All they had to do was pay the tax when they were like a hair's breadth away from winning a championship, and they didn't do it. And that is bullshit. Yeah, I agree with all of that, except my counter to that is 
obviously I, I agree with you that Giannis is, you know, a freak and is just stupidly good and in the conversation for best player alive. Where I disagree with you is I do think that it matters that they're support. Like, I no, don't mean to say that it doesn't matter. No, no, I just mean they can still win the championship. I don't think they can. You don't think they can? I don't think they can. I don't think they can win the championship with Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe as their next best players. I really don't. I yeah. Trust me, I appreciate how great Giannis is. But even in this season where like there are no super teams, I don't think Giannis' supporting cast is good enough to beat LeBron James and Anthony Davis four to seven times, to beat Kawhi Leonard and Paul George four to seven times. I don't know if it's good enough to beat Philly's defense four to seven times. Like I... So... Let me ask you this. We, we started this whole season in the run-up to the regular season starting. We talked about the parity, the balance, the fact that there were eight legitimate championship contenders. And I was willing to go up to, to <laughs> ten. We went through each one, team by team, eight championship contenders. Are you saying we're down to three? Lakers, Clippers, Sixers, is that all you got? If if I had to put money on, yeah, I I go down to those three. I'm not saying like I'm not saying the Bucks aren't a championship contender. Clearly, they are. What I'm saying is that they need Chris Middleton and Eric Bledsoe to be really damn good, and I think they could be. Mm-hmm. But would I bank on it? No. Yeah, fair enough. And so, in terms of like teams that I actually would trust, and even the Sixers to me are like I'm still not uh, completely sold. Right. That's why I even made the joke at some point in this podcast. I was like, "Wow, are we really, like maybe we're just at a point where it's like one of the two LA teams is clearly going to win the title." Yeah. Well, this always sort of tends to happen where yeah. you start the season thinking it's wide open and anyone can win, and then, I mean, it hasn't been the case the last few years, obviously because of the Warriors, but generally this is how things have gone in the NBA, where it seems wide open and then. You know, 20 games into the season, it's like, oh, these are the two teams that can win. Right. And I still do think it's wide open, in, especially in comparison to recent years and recent memory. It's just that I don't think it being, you know, wide open should be an excuse for some of these teams. Like, so for example, like Milwaukee, I don't think just because it is a wide open title chase, it can be like, well, if Giannis is this guy all year, even if Middleton and Bledsoe are these guys, we can still win. He's like, no, you can't. You need, you need at least one of those two guys to have an exceptional postseason to support Giannis, or you're not winning a title. You're not even getting to the finals. Yeah. Well, there you have it. We are two weeks into the season, <laughs> and the eight-team championship field has been reduced to two teams in Los Angeles. We're going to call it there. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all next week.